Well, today we're starting a brand new series called Trending, called Trending. We launched our church in 2007, and one of the trends that was happening while we were launching was the smartphone trend. In fact, just a few weeks, I think it was, before we started as a church, the iPhone came out for the first time. And as a brand new startup, it was so amazing to have one little screen where you could access your phone, you could access your contact list, you could access email, and you guys... You know, a lot of young ones are looking, what, there was ever a time when you couldn't? You know, (laughs) looking at these faces like, uh, that was amazing when that came out. Because as a portable church, to be able to take your office with you when you didn't have an office was a pretty cool thing. So we were uh, benefited from that trend with screens. Another thing that was trending with screens about the time we launched was screens were getting flatter and flatter and flatter, which was really nice for a portable church. Um, Some of us have been uh, working together for a long time, and we used to do these summer camps and things like this, and we would bring these large screen TVs to summer camp, and it was a team lift situation because, do you remember how deep those things used to be? They were huge. So when you're starting a church, we have some screens that we use for kids for their programming and things like that. To have a flat screen was just, oh, it was so great. So there's been some trends with screens that we have been fortunate and we're excited about. But how many of you would say with a show of hands when it comes to screens that there's a few trends that have you concerned? Yeah. I think every parent for sure has got their hands up. There's so many great trends with screens in terms of how fast they can work and how small they are and how much you can access. But there's some concerning trends too when it comes to screens. So much so that I made a note to self that screen time will have to be something that we talk about as a church family here in the not-too-distant future. But I want to just talk kind of in general for just a second about trends as we launch this series. And then we're going to get into a very specific trend here today. I'm going to draw a very unscientific graph. This is just, (laughs) I'll just tell you up front, this is not scientific. But it's, it's, it's really, anecdotally, this is what my experience has been here since we started this church. When it comes to our culture and people's level of concern, for the last nine years, I felt the trend line going like this that people have always been concerned about culture and the effect that it can have on someone who's trying to live out their faith and, and those that we love. But as the time has gone on with our church, I'm feeling more and more of an intensity coming from folks that say, I'm not just concerned, I'm very concerned about a lot of the trends that I see in our culture. And what was interesting in the nine years that we've been doing this together as a, as a church, the other trend line that follows this trend line is people that have been asking for us to teach about the end times. <laughs> they said, and I'm not making this up, the trends parallel each other pretty much. We're more and more people, the further and further we get along, saying Revelation, these other books. Can we press into this? Because it feels like these trends that are happening are signs that we are getting close to something happening, something big. So that's been interesting. The one last trend line I want to show you, this one is more scientific, when it comes to technology, when it comes to the amount of information, when it comes to a whole lot of things in our culture, change has been doing this in our world, you know, especially in Western culture. The amount of change and how fast things are changing, you can't even keep up with it anymore. There are trends that, that if you would have even just a couple years ago said, this is the case, this is the case, people would have said, you're crazy. 
Our world is changing very, very fast. So what we're going to do is starting this week, we're going to spend some time going into the scriptures and, and, and looking at this idea of trends and, and seeing if there's some timeless wisdom in God's word, which is rhetorical because I really believe there is. We're going to look at some, some timeless wisdom for the scripture of, of how do you live in a world that's changing so fast? And is there some wisdom that we can apply today with some of these trends? Because one of the things we're going to see in each of these trends that we're going to look at is that there's macro trends that have been going on for centuries that are um, that we see reflected in these micro trends in our culture today. And here's an example. The one we're going to talk about today is truth. And so here's what I would call the truth trend. And there's, we wrote this down in your notes. You might want to take a look or look up on the screens here. This is what I call the truth trend. There was a time in our world where people would actually ask who is right, right? And people sometimes will ask that today. Who is right? Are you right or am I right? And you try to discern who is right. And then it, it, somewhere along the line, people started to ask about truth. Hey, Caleb, how are you doing? Good. Good to see you, man. Um, <laughs> we love kids at this church. All right. Um, and then people began to ask, what's truth? And we're going, to, we're going to talk about, we're going to look at an example of that one today. People started questioning, what's truth? Well, then the continuum kept moving to where the point where truth is just redefined. We're going to look at that here today. Truth has been trending this way for a long, long time, and we're going to explore this truth trend today. And let me just start by saying, this does matter. If you're a Christian, this matters. If you're exploring Christianity this matters. And there's a place to write this in your notes. It matters because Christianity is a truth-based faith. I'm just going to come out and say it. Christianity is a truth-based faith. This isn't a philosophical construct that we're talking about when we're talking about Christianity. It's grounded in history. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our faith is grounded in something we believe is true, something we believe is real. Our hope isn't a philosophical construct. Our hope is based in reality. We believe that Jesus is going to come back. And when he does, his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so this faith that those of us who are Christians, we say we believe, this faith that if you're exploring Christianity, you're getting into, it's a reality-based, truth-based faith. So this does matter. Well, here's a question then that follows out of that. How do you effectively advocate for truth in a culture where you can't agree on the definition? That's what we're going to try to wrestle with here now. How do you effectively advocate for truth when you don't agree on the definition? And this isn't new to us. This is something Christians have been wrestling with for some time. In my research for this week, I came across uh, someone who is referring to this book. And the book was called Positive Preaching for the Modern Mind. Positive Preaching for the Modern Mind. That book came out in 1907. (laughs) In 1907, the modern mind was something that, that people were wrestling with. How do you communicate your faith to the modern mind? Because there was this trend that people were seeing even then. That, that when you would talk about the reality of Jesus Christ, they're like, well, that's your reality. That's your reality. And people are like, how do you even have a meaningful discussion about truth when people say that's your truth? So this is not something new. The trend towards moral relativism, as it's sometimes called, it dates back to 1907. It it, it even dates back 
further than that. The example we're going to look at in just a few minutes comes from a document that's way older than 1907. It was written in the first century. Today we're going to look at a, at a document called the Book of John, a really carefully, thoroughly vetted document that dates all the way back to the first century where a Roman official, a Roman governor, he asked that question, what is truth? His name was Pilate. He says, what is truth? He's interrogating Jesus of Nazareth. And he doesn't say, so help me understand why I should believe you. He just says, what is truth? All right, well, fast forward from Pilate's question through that other, that guy who wrote the book in 1907, all the way up to 1992. Here's another quote that shows how this trend has been progressing. And this quote comes to us from the Supreme Court of the United States. Here's a quote from the Supreme Court of the United States, a ruling Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992. The Supreme Court of the United States writes, at the heart of liberty, let that sink in for a second, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, this one's interesting, of the universe and of the mystery of human life. The Supreme Court took Pilate's questioning of truth even further, far further, I may present, than the self-evident truth that was expressed in our nation's Declaration of Independence. As a nation, didn't we once hold there were certain truths that were self-evident to all humankind? Well, in our culture, one of the things that has a number of us just perplexed and concerned is this trend where truth is becoming a synonym for opinion. Didn't they once not, didn't they mean two different things at one point, right? There was truth and there was opinion. That line is really getting blurred in this trend. So that's problematic to say the least if you want to have a discussion about truth. Because where do you start when someone says, well, you may believe Mount Everest is the highest mountain for you. I think Buck Hill is the highest mountain for me in Burnsville. And like, where do you even go with that? Where do you even go with that? That kind of thinking, and this might just be the cough medicine speaking here, this bluntness, but that kind of thinking isn't just ridiculously flawed. That kind of thinking, I believe, is dangerous. You know, it's not often I'm going to say I agree with Nietzsche. <laughs> but here's a point where I agree with Nietzsche, and I don't often agree with him because he was not a fan of Christianity. But I think he's got a great point about truth. Consider this here. I get this from a, one of the books I was looking at this week. Nietzsche argued tirelessly that secular humanism was simply too cowardly to recognize the implication of its secular view of the universe. If all our moral beliefs are really just the product of evolutionary biology, then some things may feel wrong. Well, let's be honest. If you don't believe in a God, they aren't actually wrong. Or how do you say it? Actually, truly wrong. Without a moral source outside the self, the only way to resolve these inevitable conflicts among moral ideals, according to Nietzsche, is to exercise what? Power. It means to say to others, it is right because I say so and I have the power to force you to comply. Is that the world you want to live in? Where someone gets to tell you this is true? 
because I can tell you this is true. Is that the world you want to live in? You take truth that can be discovered out of the equation, that's the world you're left with. May I present to you that our founding fathers were on to something when they advocated for truth that can be discovered outside ourselves. Truth that isn't created inside, but that there's truth out there that can be discovered. I believe they were on to something. And if you believe, like I do, that truth can be discovered, at least some truth, then how do you improve the odds of having a meaningful conversation? How do you improve the odds? Because you can't convince anybody of anything, right? If you've, got to, if you've ever dealt with a two-year-old, you can't convince anyone of anything. But what could improve your odds? That's what we want to look at today. What could improve your odds of having a meaningful conversation with someone who doesn't believe that there's a truth that can be discovered outside themselves? Now, let me say for the record, having something intelligent to say helps. We're going to spend most of our time talking about actions, but I want to start by saying what you say does matter. Because there's this trend, don't hop on this bandwagon, that it doesn't matter what you say. It, doesn't, it does. Have something intelligent to say. That does matter. And I gave you a couple references when it comes to God and thinking and, and truth. Um, this Tim Keller, he does a really good job. One of his books that I recommend is this one called Re The Reason for God. This is more the philosophical construct. He does a good job of articulating some ideas. And one of the things I like about Tim Keller is his ideas are tested. This guy's a pastor in New York City. You know, New York City and L.A., arguably the most diverse cities in the world. So he, he's... he's talking and working on these ideas in, in a diverse culture. He's also, his, his congregation, intelligent, highly educated folks. So these aren't just kind of simplistic ideas. These are some pretty solid ideas. And then this book called Preaching, I want to recommend this for everyone who wants to articulate your faith because it's not just for preachers. This book is how do you communicate in a culture like ours truth about Jesus Christ? He does such an excellent job of, of, of unpacking the culture and, and saying how do you talk about Jesus to others who don't want to hear that. So for the record, is it important to have something intelligent to say? Yes, absolutely. It is so important to be able to articulate intelligent reasons why someone should consider Christianity. Okay, here comes more hard words. And again, this might be the cough medicine, but I know it's trendy to say that Jesus doesn't care about doctrine. I know it's trendy to say that. But if you define doctrine among Christians, it's trendy to say that. If you define doctrine correctly, doctrine is just right teaching. To say Jesus doesn't care about right teaching, I mean, friends, that's heresy. Jesus cares about right teaching. But what Jesus did, he went beyond good teaching. He embodied truth himself. And that's the corner I want to turn now and focus the rest of our time on that. It's not about just having something intelligent to say because there's all kinds of people who say all kinds of things that sound good, right? It's about having a life that backs that up. So you can say this isn't something that just sounds good. This works. It works for me. And guess what? It can work for you. This isn't just my reality. It's more than that. This can be true for us and for them. Jesus didn't only talk about truth, he embodied it. And that made what he had to say more compelling. It's interesting, Pilate, 
This guy we mentioned earlier, that Roman, he philosophized about truth, if that's even a word. Well, he disappeared from history about 37 AD. The Jesus movement that embodied truth, not just Jesus, but his followers, they embodied truth. And they went on to change the world. So let's look at what we can learn from them, starting with this account with Pilate. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open with me. John 18, uh, starting with verse 28. And I want to let you know, too, we believe so much in the truth that's recorded in this book. We'd love to give you a Bible free each and every Sunday. Well, take one, one Sunday, and not every Sunday, but <laughs> Bible's for sale. Uh, we keep them at the, the uh, tables there. We'd love for you to take one home. Okay, so here's what it says. John chapter 18, starting with verse 33. Oh, I've got to give you some quick context for this. What led up to this event is Jesus had been um, brought into custody by the religious establishment, and they wanted to execute him but they didn't have the authority. And so they brought Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate. And that's where this account picks up. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and he called Jesus and he said to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Well, Pilate said to him, okay, so you're a king. Jesus answered, will you say that I'm a king? For this purpose, pause. Jesus is going to give a mission statement here. For this purpose, don't let those words just fly by. Jesus is going to reveal something very important. For this purpose, purpose I was born for this purpose I've come into the world what's the purpose to bear witness to the there's that word truth to bear witness to the truth (laughs) he doubles down how politically incorrect Jesus this doesn't sound very Christ like right everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice he says you read Christian blogs these days this doesn't sound Christ like Jesus says, everyone who listens to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate then says to him, what's truth? What's truth? And after he said this, look at this. Pilate goes back outside to the Jews and he tells them, I find no guilt in him. If Nietzsche wanted a proof text in the Bible to say, see, this is what I was telling you about. This would be a good one. Because here was a powerful person who had the responsibility and authority to find the truth. Whose responsibility, whose authority was it to correctly judge Jesus of Nazareth? Pilate. And what did Pilate, conclusion he came to? Pilate looks at Jesus. He believes that Jesus is innocent. Pilate believes that Jesus should be set free. Three times in the Gospels, that's emphasized, by the way. Twice in John, another time in Luke. That is Pilate's reality, that this is an innocent man. That is Pilate's truth, that this is an innocent man. And yet, Pilate goes with the culture. He says, this is truth, but I'm going to go with the culture. Because he can. Because he has the power to do so. Because Pilate wasn't bound to a higher moral, self-evident truth. This whole notion of 
moral relativism. It'll get you an A in a lot of college philosophy classes. You know, a lot of profs really like that. But that's college. In the real world, where people often wield power in evil and corrupt ways, when you take away the self-evident truths regarding the dignity and sanctity of every human life, you don't get an A, you get ISIS. Nietzsche was right on that point. One of the reasons that we're still talking about a Jewish rabbi 2,000 years later is that Jesus of Nazareth, he didn't just talk about truth. It wasn't some ideal. It wasn't some philosophy. It wasn't something that you just debate in your head. He embodied truth. I encourage you to write this down. The truth that matters most dwelt among us. The truth that matters most dwelt among us. And it was interesting. I knew the word truth appeared several times in the Gospel of John before this week, but I never realized it's a theme. I'm also embarrassed. Almost every Sunday I come to you guys, I'm like, sorry, I didn't even know. I didn't know this. I'm reading through. I'm looking. I reread John. Truth, 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 truth. Truly, truly, I say to you, truth, 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 truth. Fact check me on that. Read John. Look how many times John talks about truth, 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 truth. It's all over there. And here's the other thing. Look how many times when he says truth, he talks about actions. Look how the connection between what we say we believe and what we do. Look at the connections. It's all over there. In fact, I'll go this far. I encourage you to write this down. Authentic Christianity. I'm going to be so bold as to say, here's authentic Christianity. Who am I to say that? I'll try my best to make my case. Authentic Christianity, it's a come and see invitation. It's not a here's what you should believe just in your head. It's a come and see. Come and see this. And there's some passages. You can start your journey in the very first chapter of John. Jesus, follow me. Come and see. His followers, when they encounter Jesus, come and see. I'm not just going to tell you about this. Come and see. This is the real deal. Come and see. John 4, it's all over John 4. Come and see. Come and see. Come and see this man who has changed my life. And those people that came and see, they're like, now we get it. We don't just believe because you said to come and see. He's the real deal. Authentic Christianity is a come and see invitation. Sound Christian doctrine matters. Why? Because sound Christian doctrine ultimately points you to Jesus, who was the way, the truth, and the life. And that's the passage we're going to look at right now. John 14, 6 says this. Jesus answered to one of his disciples, a guy named Thomas, He says, Thomas, I am the way, I'm the what? I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. (laughs) You talk like that in our culture? You're going to get invited to a lot of parties? (laughs) Oh, man. A couple political parties, maybe. I better shut up on that. Here we go. Look at that. I'm the way, the truth, like no one comes to the Father except me. This is a great quote by a philosopher. Theologian I really respect, N.T. Wright, he says this, only when the church recovers the nerve to follow Jesus. Isn't that a great statement? Only when the church recovers the nerve to follow Jesus in his own mission and vocation, I suspect, will it be able to recover the nerve fully in making the claim of John 14, 6. It takes a lot of nerve to say Jesus is the way and truth and life. Maybe we'll recover that nerve if we're actually living it out. What if our words are more than words? Let's look, let's look at what Jesus does. Let's just keep reading in John 14. A lot of times, 
people stop. I've, a lot of times I've stopped on John 14, 6. Look what happens if we, we just keep reading, picking up with you know, verses 7 and 8. And Philip now says to Jesus, another disciple, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough for us. Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In effect, Jesus says to Philip, Philip, hey, just look at my life. Look at my life. You say you want to see the Father? Have we not been spending this time together? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which then begs the question, when people look at us, do they see Jesus? If we claim to be a follower of Jesus. And that's not a jump that I'm making on my own. I can make that jump because that's where Jesus goes in the very next verse. That's where he takes it. That's where he takes this conversation. Look at this. Pick it up. We left off in verse 11. Let's pick up on verse 12. Truly, truly, I say you, to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. This is an important clarifier here when Jesus says, if you ask in my name, because what he means by that is not just ask whatever you want. Because if you ask for something that's going to dishonor the name of God, that's not what you should be asking for. This is about asking for things in his name, things that will make us more Christ-like. That's where he continues on. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And if you're here as a regular, you're going to say, well, you keep coming back to that verse. It might sound like I keep coming back to that verse. Because that type of thing is said all over the Bible. We're not just coming back to this verse. That's the kind of thing you see throughout the scriptures. Faith without works is dead. It just comes in so many different ways. It's all over there. If we say we believe these things, do our lives bear the fruit of what we say we believe? Let's continue on. Picking up verse... 50. Oh, I got to pick up where I just stopped right there. I'll pick up after the period. <laughs> and I will ask the Father, this verse says. Keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. They call the four biblical accounts of Jesus' life the gospel. And the word gospel translates roughly into the good news. This is good news. Because Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I did this. Now you do this. Go get it right. Or I'll get you. He says, I did this. And I'm going to send a helper so that you can do this. The spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. And as this section of scripture, John 14, 15, 16, as it continues on, this idea gets unpacked with greater detail. Um, John 17 carries this thinking about the spirit of truth to, to even a deeper level. And it says this, John 17, starting with verse 16. They're not of the world. Jesus is praying now. They're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. My disciples, he's talking about. They're not of the world, not even if I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus prays. 
Sanctify them in the truth. Your word, Father, is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words. This is interesting. You know, I've, so many times I'm guilty of this. I've quoted that verse of the spirit of truth, but I haven't made the connection that it's more than the mind, right? The spirit of truth is more than the truth to our mind because the Holy Spirit helps to sanctify us. Out loud, does anyone know what the word sanctify means? It means to make holy, to make holy. The Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, does more than just brings truth to our minds. The Holy Spirit wants to help align our lives with the truth. Does that make sense? Becoming more like Jesus so that we can embody truth even as he did. And may I present to you that that gospel truth resonates really, really well with the modern mind and the postmodern mind. Because now we're not just up there in the ideal ideals. Now we're talking about truth that people can see because it's embodied. And isn't that what most of the people that you know are looking for? Does this actually work? Does this work? And what we're saying is, when it comes to our truth, it's a come and see invitation. This doesn't just work for me. This can work for you. Because Christ didn't just die for me. He didn't just send the Holy Spirit for me. He died for the world. And the Holy Spirit is a gift that he'll give to all those who sincerely ask. Do you see how this is a very different message than often Christians are accused of bringing if you're becoming more Christ-like, you're not an argument bringer. If you're becoming more Christ-like, you're not a condemnation bringer. If you're in Christ, you're not a double standard bringer. If we're in Christ, we're good news bringers. Do you see how different that is? It's a come and see deal. We're good news bringers because we believe that the gospel stories aren't just stories. We believe that Jesus isn't just the way, the truth, and the life for us. We believe he's the way and the truth and the life for the world. And as we invite the spirit of truth to have full reign over our lives, we won't just be talking about the things that Jesus said 2,000 years ago. We'll be able to point to our lives and say, look at the difference that Jesus can make. We can point to our lives and we can say, when, you, when I follow Jesus, I'm a better husband. Or when I follow Jesus, I'm a better wife. Or when I follow Jesus, I'm a better son or I'm a better daughter. We can point to our lives and say, when I follow Jesus, when I'm, when I'm being sanctified by the spirit of truth, I'm a better boss or I'm a better worker or I'm a better teammate or I'm a better neighbor. We can point to our lives and say, when I'm following Jesus, I give more joyfully. I experience more peace and contentment. I slow down in the right ways. And I'm more passionate in the right ways. And best of all, we can point to our lives and say, when I follow Jesus, I have a real peace with God. This week, we invited our staff and our elders to what's called the Global Leadership Summit. 300,000 leaders throughout the world will be a part of this thing before it's all done. And one of the speakers was the former CEO of Ford. 
And he described his first day on the job. So former CEO of what company? Ford. They bring him in, first day on the job, and he, he gets off the airplane and he's picked up in a Land Rover. <laughs> and he takes note of that brand that he saw there. And then he gets brought to corporate office, big blue oval Ford oval on top of the corporate office, goes into the underground parking where all the executives park. He looks at all the executives' cars. He sees that none of the executive cars have the blue oval that say Ford. And he took note of that. When people look at us, if we say we're Christians, do they make that connection that these people have been with Jesus? Because here's another one of these trends that people are jumping on. They say, I don't want to talk about Jesus. I just want to live it out. then you're disconnecting from the importance of sharing the faith. You know, someone was doing some fact-checking. I said, do some, I always invite you guys to fact-check. And they're saying, well, Land Rover is a, what used to be a Ford brand. Do you see how we can, that was kind of his point, right? With his story. We can, we can, people can just think you're just a good person or, or whatever. Is Christ really changing your life in such a way where people are like, tell me, why are you the way you are? And people can see that it's about Jesus and his work in our lives. One of the things another speaker said, he, he said that line that I just hear so often. He says, you know, you got to get outside the four walls of your church. And I was just, wait a minute, I keep forgetting. When we're in the four walls of our church, where are we? We're in the Shoreview Community Center. God opened the doors for us to be in the Shoreview Community Center. What a great opportunity each and every week we have. And I, and I wrote this down. I said, you know, we, each and every week, you have the opportunity to show this community something different. And I, I use that word, you, intentionally, because we are yous, right? There is no we with a bu- without a bunch of yous. We can't be a welcoming church if you aren't welcoming people. We can't be a generous church unless you, and I'm part of the you, are generous people. We can't care for kids. We can't care for teens. We can't offer great groups without yous. Is that, was that New Jersey? Is that yous? <laughs> I'm making you feel welcome, aren't I? Huh, Dan? All right. Can we do any of the greater things that Jesus said we can do if the yous aren't fully saying, Holy Spirit, sanctify my truth, Imagine a church, because we are they. Imagine a church where the more people get to know us, the more they see Jesus, instead of the opposite. I, I, can't talk to, I can't count the number of people I've talked to over the course of my life who served as an elder in their church or as a pastor, and they say, I never want to do that again. Because the more I got to know about the inside of the church, the more I'm like, I yuck. It's ugly and it's messy and it's political and it's all these things. And so we, we met this week with our elders and one of the things I said is I said, may that never be true of us. May the opposite be true, that the more they get to know us, the more they see these people are sincere and they truly are seeking Jesus. And they truly are trying to become more Christ-like and they hate politics and all that kind of stuff. 
the bad political stuff. And what should be true of us as church leaders behind the closed doors of 513 Tanglewood Drive, may that be true of all of us in our homes, in our cars, in our rooms, in our offices. May the more people get to know us, may the more they see Jesus and say, this is really something that is working for you. Could this work also for me? Last set of blanks in your notes. Could you write this down, please? It's an important question. Is your life trending towards greater Christ-likeness? Is your life trending? And that's an important word, trending towards greater Christ-likeness. Because this is a journey, isn't it? And it's not about, am I exactly like Jesus? Because there was one Jesus. Is it, it's about, are you trending that way? Are you, are you becoming closer and closer to him? One step at a time. And if that's something that you want, you've you got to know you're going to face some headwinds. Why? Because the hell itself doesn't like that. Hell itself doesn't like that. Look at what Jesus prayed in this prayer that we were quoting from earlier. John 17, 15. Jesus prayed this for us. He said, I don't ask you that you take them out of the world, but you keep them safe from who? What? Jesus talked about the devil? Man, what in the world? Jesus did talk about the devil. In fact, in the book of John, Jesus says the devil is the father of lies. If we're pursuing truth, and he's the father of lies, do you expect that we should expect some resistance if we're going to be truth-seeking people? If we're going to be a truth-seeking church? If we're going to proclaim truth to the world? Should we expect opposition from the evil one? Yes. And not just from the evil one, but from those who are under his influences. Look what Tim Keller writes. Last Tim Keller quote for the day. The late modern mind presents itself as something like this. So kids, if you're listening, I'm not saying this is true. This is what a lot of people think is true. They think that we've come to realize that we don't need God to explain the world we see. Science will do that job for us. We don't need God or religion to be moral, to love and to work for a better world or to have meaning or fulfillment in life. What many people in the world think is that what we need is to be free. To live life as we see fit. And to work together to make the world a better place to live. And what a lot of people believe is that religion gets in the way of all this. It constrains our freedom to live as we wish. And divides us so we can't work together. So if you're trying to tell people there is a truth that you can discover, that is threatening. Because it threatens the whole worldview. If you become a person that seeks truth and wants to proclaim truth, expect, expect that it's not going to go well. So I continue to encourage you, pray for our church. We're a truth-speaking, truth-seeking church. And pray, too, for God to deliver you from evil. Because you can expect it. The other thing I just, so remember that, the last thing I want to encourage you to remember, and this falls in line with kind of what I was saying earlier about this whole idea of a journey. Remember to extend grace. Because all you can do is take your next step. That's it. It takes time to become more like Jesus. 
It takes time. And so extend grace. Extend yourself to others. May one of the marks of this church be that we extend grace and we cheer people on. And we don't just say, oh, how come you're not here yet? They're not there yet because they're not there yet. Are you there? You know? Cheer people on as we take our next step because that's the only thing you can do. Change is hard and change takes time. The church that sponsored this Global Leadership Summit, 300,000 people taking part in this. For nine years, they've really been working intentionally on changing their culture. They did a survey about nine years ago, and they realized, we got a lot of problems internally. Let's get this fixed. Nine years later, they showed us the result of a, um, of a, of a, of a survey that Chicago, they're based in Chicago. Chicago took a survey. Willow Creek Community Church was voted the number one place to work for their size. But how long did it take? It took nine years. But look what God can do as, you're, as you take step after step after step. Personally, right now I'm reading a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader. I want to become a healthier person emotionally and spiritually, all these things. It's a great book. And one of the things that gives me so much hope is the guy who wrote the book. He said, I've been working on this for 18 years. I'm like, okay, there's hope for all of us, right? Step by step by step. And look what else he writes within the book. He says this, and again, he's talking about those of us who want to trend towards greater Christ-likeness. He writes this. He says it's critical that you take a long view. Inhale, exhale, and relax. We don't suddenly slam on the brakes of life or slow down and then get it all at once. Whenever I feel discouragement in my own progress, I remember what one Trappist monk said to me as he reflected on his 60 years of life of dedicated to prayer. He said, I'm only a what? Beginner. I say these things because I know we've got some performance-oriented folks here. You know, and you could be thinking, okay, that's it. Tomorrow, I'm going to be just like Jesus. (laughs) No, you're not. But you can take a step in that direction. And that's what we want to encourage everyone to do. So let's pray to that end as we close. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you said, follow me. And that you even gave us that, not just imagery, but that truth. That that's our faith. We follow you one step at a time. And Lord, I pray that you would be so gracious as to give every one of us a next step today. And perhaps that next step is the big one of, okay, I'm going to put my trust in you. And I'm going to make you the Lord of my life. And I'm going to start to, right here, right now, to say, God, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And and I receive that lordship. I, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I thank you for your forgiveness. And now I want to, to begin to walk in your ways. But Lord, it's highly likely that most of us, are, are, our next steps are either a step towards that or a step beyond that. And so our Lord revealed to us What's our next step to become more like you? Is it to stop doing something? Is it to start doing something? Holy Spirit, sanctify us by revealing that which our next step is and then empowering us to walk that out. And Lord, may you sanctify us as a church, that we are a place that cheers one another on in their pursuit of trending towards greater Christlikeness. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to pray about next steps or anything, Brandon is right there in the back of the room. He'd love to talk, pray with you. God bless you. Have a great week.